All right. To, today we are doing um, one more message before we hop on to our new series. Next week we will start a new series, and I want you to be here as we kick that off. And as we start both services, we, we need you here because there, I'll just go ahead and deal with this real quick. There's going to be a sense of, oh my goodness, our church just got so small. We're, we're hopefully dividing in about half. So it's gonna, it's good, there's going to be space, and that's okay. Uh, and we're going to get these, this whole thing of figuring out how to run two services down before we really invite our community to come and check out that we have two services. So be ready for that. The ship is not sinking when there's extra seats around. It's going to be good, all right? We, we're excited about that, and we're excited about the opportunities it's going to open. Today's message, it, it, it's for anyone who has been feeling overwhelmed. And I know there's a lot of different things that can cause us to feel overwhelmed. Sometimes I kind of chuckle when I see someone who's really overwhelmed if it's something that I've walked through before. Like when I see a new dad who just had their first kid walking in, like after the first week or two of like having that new little baby, all the parents in the room, they're like, yeah, I've been through that terror before. It's like in their eyes, like you see the joy and the happiness and like, oh, this is awesome. But you also see the like, how am I supposed to function with no sleep? Like, there's that piece of, of it, too. And, and once the kids get older, I mean, it's different. It's, it's better, it's worse. I don't know. It's different because once they get older, when you're kind of in the stage where my kids are, it's like, okay, they get home from school at 4 o'clock, and we need to do two hours of homework from 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock because we have to be at dance by 5.15, and then I have to leave one kid at dance and take the other kid to soccer, and it's 30 minutes away, and we have to drive there in 15 minutes. And then while that kid's at soccer, we need to take the other kid to Chick-fil-A so that we can get some food, and I'm just going to throw that kid into the playground at Chick-fil-A so I kind of have a moment of sanity before I go and start picking up all the other kids and then once I have all the other kids I realize I left that kid in the playground at Chick-fil-A and I have to go back and get them and, and it's like then we get home and it's nine o'clock we need to clean things up we need to get things in bed and then by the time you know that's over it's like okay I'm exhausted but I should probably like stop and give part of my day to God and it's like man I wonder how like my priorities got so so shifted that it's like at the very end one of my very last thoughts is oh man I wish I had started my day off with God and it's easy to fall into that because we just fall into these natural rhythms of the way that everybody else lives. But I want to encourage you, we don't have to just do things the way that everyone else does them. There's an order to our life that we should follow. And that order is found in scripture. It's not found in society. And, and we can find lots of different teachings about that. And there's so many different things. It may not be kids. You know, you're like, you probably love, thanks Paul, I came to church. Now I feel stressed about my kids and I didn't even feel that before. But it may not, it may not be kids that is the tension that you're carrying and working through right now. It may not be busyness. It might be money, figuring out how to order your money because right now there's bills that are coming in and you don't even want to open them. So you leave them in a stack on a table and just kind of leave them there hoping that someone else will pay them and deal with them and you try not to deal with it. It might be in your marriage right now. It's like a happy, loving, intimate marriage might be so out of, out of sight right now. You must, might be just asking for civility. Like, like I, that sounds great, but if we could just not fight with each other, that's what we're looking for right now. I mean, there's so many different areas where I know that the anxiety and the fear, it can just begin to weigh on your shoulders, and it can overwhelm you. And, and I, I can't possibly, in this morning, teach through all the different situations that people are feeling and experiencing, but I can definitely talk to the underlying truths that give those areas power in our life. And I believe that when we order those things the way that they're supposed to be ordered, then it's like whatever the issue was, whether it's problems with kids, problems with scheduling our day, problems with managing our finances, problems with our marriage relationships, our work relationships, our school relationships. When we set the foundation where it's supposed to be and order our day from that, it puts all of those things in line. 
Today we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke chapter 17, and I'm going to be going back and forth through the passages a little bit. And, and we have this situation where Jesus was going towards Jerusalem, and he had to move from Gal- Galilee to Samaria. And before I really dive into the passage, I just want you to have some context and understanding of the culture and the times of what we're talking about here. Samaria was like the place that people didn't want to go through. And, and the, the Jewish people, they referred to the Samaritans, that, I mean, the, the way to describe it is they were racist. They, they discriminated against them because though they were considered like brothers before, during war they were taken out of their country and then they married other people. They adopted some views uh, of foreign gods and mixed it into their religion. And then they came back and, and there were this mixed ethnicity um, right next to them. And they ref- the Jews referred to them as, as half-breed dogs. But like they, they were very critical of them. And so as Jesus is even entering into here, this was an area that, that the Jewish people tried to avoid at all costs. And Samaritans, they were, they were looked at with disdain and hate. And so keep that in mind as we read into this passage, starting at verse 11 in Gospel of Luke chapter 17. It says, as Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. He entered the village there. Ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Leprosy that's described here in this passage, it was a disease that would affect the skin. And and it was described as it would make the skin turn white like snow. And and it would be described as like scales. It would harden. If you could almost imagine, like the cuticles near your fingers, if the skin on your arms or other parts of the body began to flake up, turn white as that skin died, and it would become so itchy that the person who had it would itch, and then those flakes would come off, leaving exposed flesh, which would then get infected, which could lead to the loss of limbs and other problems because of infection. And so this disease was very serious, and it would spread through contact through either other materials. So garments that were touched by a leprous, leprous person could not be touched by someone else. If, if a leprous person was in a house, then that house was considered contaminated. They couldn't be in the house. So when someone got this affliction... It wasn't just that they were physically uncomfortable. You have to understand that that person was then taken and removed from their family unit. Moved outside of the village. If they were walking and someone else was coming in the distance, they would have to call out, unclean, unclean, so the people wouldn't come near them. I mean, they would begin to forget the touch and the hug of a person that they love dearly, a family member, because they're not allowed to even be close to them. They couldn't work their job. They had to depend on people bringing and leaving baskets of food out to them. It was a horrible, terrible situation to be in, socially and emotionally, let alone the physical discomfort that would come along with this. So when we think about the tension, the stress, the the fear that would be on these people, it's immense. It's beyond what most of us have ever experienced. And, And so these people who are alone, who are outcasts, They find themselves, and they're there on the edge of town, and they call out from a distance to Jesus, crying out for mercy. And though these men were in a terrible situation and had so many things going against them, they found themselves really at the right place. They found themselves right right where they would want to be, because here in front of them walks Jesus, who with a word, he can change their situation. Continuing, Continuing into the passage, in verse 13, it says, crying out, Jesus, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. 
being in the right place, being in a place that's going to help you grow, being in a place where someone can help you is, is incredibly important advice. It's good to be in the right place at the right time to make something better. If you put yourself in the wrong place, it's easy to get even worse. Like if you're working on your marriage, the wrong place for you to go is a tandem kayak. If any of you guys have ever tried to kayak or canoe with someone thinking this is going to be a great date for me and my wife, that's how you start fights in marriage. <laughs> because it's like, you're supposed to row on the right. I am rowing on the right. You're splashing me. Stop it. We're going, we're just spinning in circles and we're supposed to be over there. I mean, you don't even have to be in the same thing. If you're, if you're out like paddle boarding, that's one of the most epic fights me and Tia have ever had. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she told me to leave her alone because I was over trying to help her, and so I did, and that was the wrong thing as well. I shouldn't have paddled away and left her in the water. Like, like there's certain places, there's certain places that you can put yourself to make a situation better. There's certain places you can put yourself to make a situ situation worse. If you're fighting an addiction, a bar is probably not the right place to go. If you're looking to grow in your ability to relate to someone else, you need to go places that, that you can grow in that. You need to be, go places you can grow in your faith. Where you are matters. The people that you surround yourself with matters. The first point that I want us to see, that, and this is, I'm giving you three, and I like to keep it simple because I'm stupid and it helps me. And so it's, it's just simple things. These, there's three simple things that I see in this passage that if you do these, these are going to help you move, move that feeling of being overwhelmed, that feeling of anxiety and fear. To begin to take control of that part of your life. The, the first thing is realizing we need to choose the best place. We need to choose the best place for us to be. In the season of life that we're in right now, there's certain people that we may love them dearly, but right now, until we get it together, we need to put some, some border walls up. And we, and we need to control their access because we know that when we're with them, we do the things that they do. And, and sometimes we need to say, hey, I just need, I need to hit pause on that. Sometimes we need to find new places to spend our time and be influenced by people because we may not even have the right people yet. And I know that's why some of you guys popped into church and are trying out a new church because you say, I need to be surrounded by people who are going to help me through what I'm going through with life. And, and so we need to realize where we are, it, it matters. Hebrews 10.25 says it this way, especially speaking to, to Christians. It says, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. It's easy to be like, you know... I just don't have time for church right now, and so I'm just going to be in these other situations. And I'll get back to church. I'll get back there. But as we're in these other situations, their influence continues to, to put our life in a certain direction. And just even in this passage, it's kind of funny. There, there's some details in here that are tremendously important to get the picture of what happened. These leprous men, they cried out to Jesus, and he said, go show yourselves to the priest. He said, go to the temple. But they weren't healed yet. They, they, they still, the scales were still there. They were still in pain. And, and they started going. And what it says is that as they went, they were cleansed of their, their leprosy. It would have been easy for them to be one or two or three steps into, okay, we're going to walk to the temple and say, this is stupid. Why are we walking to the temple? We're going to get there and, and they're going to hate us and they're going to yell at us because we're still unclean. Like, like th this, is, this is a dumb plan. Like we should be healed and then we should go. And so much of our prayers and so much of, with, with our interactions with God, we, we have a problem in our life and we're like, God, would you just fix this? And, and, and God, would you just fix my finances? And God says, okay, you want me to fix your finances? Then, you know, I want you to begin to show me that you can manage what I've given you. And you know, I want you to invest some of your money in other people, invest some in your bills. And, and scripture gives us an order. And it's like, well, you know what? Giving away my money, that's not going to help fix it. Or maybe, you know, another area, it doesn't have to be finances, it can be anything. It's, you know what, God, I feel like no one encourages me. 
And then what we see in Scripture is we don't see a call for other people to encourage us. We see a call for us to encourage other people. And, and it's like, God, I feel discouraged. And God says, I need you to go encourage someone else. And by beginning to serve and fulfill your purpose, you'll find yourself in the right place to be encouraged and, and to receive what you need. But it starts with you stepping out. And it's like, well, God, how is encouraging someone else going to help me? I need that. But, but this is the order of the way that it works with the things of God, that when we ask him to work, he gives us this small, simple step that, that we might look at it and we say, this won't fix the problem that I'm asking you to fix. And what he would say is the problem it, it isn't really the problem. Obedience is the problem. The fact that I've given you instruction and you've disregarded it, re- disregarded it. And that's really the source of most of our issues. It's the source of our debt. It's the source of our marriage problems. It's the source of the problems within our family. It's the problems at work. They all come from, there's been those moments where we, where we kind of disregarded like, you know, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the building of others according to their need. We kind of let that go and we spoke some things that got, got us in some issues with some relationships. And now we're saying, God, will you just fix it like that? And he says, okay, I'm going to fix it one step at a time. But you have to be willing to take that step. And so church, when it, when it comes to issues, at first I'd say, you know, put yourself around the, the, the right situation, the right people to help you. But one of the first things, are you willing to be obedient to what God asks you in the very simple step? God might put it on your heart and you might be like, that won't fix my issue. I mean, I understand because for someone who hasn't been around the things of God much, just even the concept of going to church just even the concept of trusting him, it can just feel like, how would that do anything? I mean, I remember the moment where I first really placed my trust in him. I thought I was just dealing with the heaven and hell stuff. I had no clue what God was about to do in my heart and in my life and in my future. But that's how the things of God work. It's like, will you listen to me on this small thing? Because once you listen to me, I can, I can take you to something bigger. I can work in a bigger way, but you've got to show me that you'll trust me in these smaller things. And that's how it works. Jesus said, you know, begin to go, begin to go. And then on the way, they experience healing. On the way is when the miracle happened. And the interesting thing about this, this story, this section that we're looking at, is the most important part of the story is actually not the healing that we just read about. That's not the climax point of the story. That's not the message of the story. We're going to continue. I'm going to pick it actually back up at verse 13. And it says, crying out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, he came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go, for your faith has healed you. This situation, all ten of the men experienced the same situation. All ten of the men had leprosy. But nine of them reacted in one way, and one of them reacted in a completely different way. And it's interesting, you've probably seen this in your own family. It's like how we can all go through the same experience, but we all have a really different reaction to it. We all say, okay, we went through this, so that means I have to do this now. I have to feel this way now. And it's like, it's, it's different. We see it differently. And our perspective of what we just walked through, it matters in a big way because it guides our actions. Uh, Chuck Swindoll said it really well when he, when he said that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% of how you react to it. Our, our perspective of, of what we just walked through, it carries a lot of weight in the way that we live. 
And, and this is point number two, the simple thing of how to begin to control this anxiety, this fear, this sense of being overwhelmed that we have on our shoulders. Point number two is we choose the best perspective. Now, I, I let that simmer for a minute because there's part in, in a lot of our minds and our hearts that say, well, I don't get to choose my perspective. And I want to challenge you that you do. You can choose whether you're going to feel like a victim or you can choose whether you feel like you're just going to have to fight harder to go where you need to go. You, you can choose to give up on a situation or you can choose to fight for it. We can choose what our perspective of what we have to do to move forward is going to be like. We, there, there's a lot of choice that, that, that God gives us. And I, I was taught this, and I think I, I've shared some about her before, but she's such encouragement to my life. I, I was taught this by a, a young girl who walked through a situation that hopefully none of us will ever have to walk through. Um, a girl named Carly Cook for my Muncie, Indiana people. I mean, when you talk about control of your situation and your perspective of your situation, man, she is a beautiful picture. Car Carly Cook and her older sister, Kelsey, were both diagno diagnosed with a disease called DOC8. And it's a disease that affects their immune system. And, and it basically leaves them vulnerable in a way where they get all kinds of different cancers. Uh, DOC8, pe um, people who have this genetic disorder, they, they don't live through their 20s. Can you imagine being a 19-year-old girl and saying, my life only has a few years left, maybe one. Carly actually had to watch her older sister Kelsey pass away because of the disease. And she knew that that was the same road that she was walking on. The first time that I met Carly, we were walking from one building to the next, and we were having a volunteer lunch. And I said, hey, are you coming over? we got a bunch of pizzas for everybody. And one of the friends that was with her was like, oh, cheese and bread. That's the perfect recipe to kill Carly. Like, she can't eat any of that stuff. And I'm like... I wish somebody told me that before I offered her pizza. Um, but, but she just laughed and she said, no, it's okay. I always bring my own food to this kind of stuff. Whenever I would see her, I'd ask her how she's doing. And she would always beam and she'd say, I'm, I'm doing great. You know, I'm just figuring out, like one of the times in between the buildings where we were walking, uh, it, it, she said, I'm just figuring out what I'm going to do. If I'm going to let them try this experimental bone marrow transplant or if I'm just going to live out the next six months to a year. Like, that's a hard conversation to continue, isn't it? But especially when she's like, she just still has joy. She's still not defeated. And did she have her ups and her downs? Absolutely. But man, did she carry a joy with her that I wish I would possess. I mean, like, it's easy for me to be like, man, my Amazon Prime package didn't show up in two days. This is the worst. <laughs> like, it, it, it's so easy for me to let some stupid, silly little thing control my perspective and put me in a bad mood. And it's like I focus on, on like the 1% of the bad things in my life when there's this other 99% that's like I should be rejoicing. So many people would, would love to have the situation that I have. And, and I say that and I, I don't want that to, to come at you as like an angry thing. But I want you to realize the power and the control you have over your, per, your, over your, your perception of your situation. Over your view, over your, your perspective of your life. I understand you may have been in a dark place for the last couple months, but you don't have to stay there. You can choose how to see it. One out of the ten guys looked at their situation and, and said, man, I need to go back and I, I need to thank God and I need to celebrate what happened. The other nine out of the ten guys were like, you know what, God finally answered my prayer and this is about me. I'm finally getting my old life back. The one out of the ten, he said, you know what, my old life is gone. God has given me a new life. 
And, and so I get to step into this thing, and I'm going to start it the right way by going back to God and celebrating him. And throughout Scripture, we see God continually asks for the first. He's like, I want the first part of your day. I want your first, your, your first heartbeats of, of prayer and, and words in the morning. When, when it comes to finances, you know, give from your first, not from your leftovers. When, when it comes to your heart, I want the first place in your heart. When it comes to your mind, I want my word to have the first place. When, it, when it's teaching and you're asking, how should I do this? How should I live? I want all of those things in the first place. And, and, and this, this one out of ten man, he came back and he was a Samaritan. And man, that was like a poke into the eye of all the Jewish listeners. It's like, man, the, the Jewish people, they should have known. They were the more religious people. They were the people who had it more together. And yet this Samaritan, he showed them all up. And, and that's just another part of the, the passage that, that's a teaching part. That, that it doesn't matter what your past has been. It doesn't matter what, what life has been like. You, you can choose. And, and Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, it gives this picture of God's thoughts versus our thoughts. It, it, it says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now this isn't just to point out the difference of God's thoughts and our thoughts, but it's supposed to point out a target. I want to think about the world the way that God thinks about the world. I want to think about other people the way that God thinks about other people. I want to see my situation the way that God sees my situation. I don't want to just see it through, through the way that my society has seen it. And, and so when we see what's going on around us, when we think about what's going around us, we want to think of it through that lens of Scripture, through that lens uh, of God's point of view. And, and because what we see and what we continue to have in our mind, that determines our future and our actions. It sets a course for the way that we live. It sets a course for the way that we start our day. And so the, the simple point number three is we choose the best priorities. We choose the best perspective, and that helps guide the priorities, the actions that we take. In Luke 17, you know, receiving this great gift of healing, 9 out of 10 left and had priorities above thanking God, above praising God for the situation that just happened. God has given you an amazing blessing this day. What's your response to it? I mean, God has given you health and the ability to walk into this place, to, to be in this place. And how many of the smaller things have we allowed to capture the way that, that we feel, but also what we do, what we start our day with? Band, if you guys would go and start making your way up onto the stage, I'm going to begin to wrap this up. The way that we speak, the way that we use our finances, the way that we love our kids, the way that we treat strangers, the way, the way that we treat the homeless, that we've been given instructions about all of these things. And I believe that God's given us instructions and we've given him excuses. And man, um, so, so church, should we be a church that loves the homeless? Yeah, oh, that, that, that wasn't a trick question, don't worry. Um, when, when people are getting their life back together, should we be a church that helps, encourages, and loves those people? Okay, yeah, that's also not a trick question. But it gets a little bit more real when we find out, okay, there's a halfway house in Gator Circle. Do we love those men? I know we do, but it's kind of hard. When, when they show up in our church and, and they don't look like they have it all together, do we welcome them in with the same handshake and the same hug that we give to anybody else? Yes, we do. Because even from men that were so outcast because of disease, and I'll tell you this about leprosy as well, 
that in their society, when they looked at someone who had leprosy, they didn't just say, oh, you got sick. They said, oh, you got judged. So these 10 men, they were looked at as, oh, you, you, got, you finally got what you deserve. I may not have known your sin, but God did. And, and, and he caught up with you and he found you. And so it, th- this perspective of anyone who comes into our church, they need to be loved by us. We need to carry that love into their life. And, due to, and, and this is what it comes down to in the way that we do our priorities, in the way that we set our perspective, in the way that we view how we live our life. It comes down to a choice that God has given us. And and from the Old Testament through the New, God continues to say, I will lay it out before you, but you will have to choose. Deuteronomy 30, 19 says it this way. Today, I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. And listen to this. Oh, that you would choose life. God's heartbeat is that you would choose life. God's heartbeat is that you would choose his plan. But it rests on your shoulders. Will you choose his ways? Will you seek first the kingdom of heaven and allow all else to be added? What will you choose, church? I remember when I made that choice. I didn't know all that God was going to do, but I said yes. And for me, it has changed everything. And for you, if you've been carrying anxiety, if you've been carrying worry, then this is your opportunity to say, God, I'm going to start doing it your way. But you will know when you make the choice. You will know when you say, God, I will do it your, your way. It's in Joshua as well. And this verse is in so many homes. It says, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. When was that decision made that you will serve him? When was that decision made that he's not just the Lord of your life, but he's the Lord of your decisions? And so church, go ahead and stand with me as we close this out. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you that you don't need to be overwhelmed by your circumstances anymore. That if you've been carrying anxiety, if you've allowed worry to control your perspective, that this is the moment where you can say, God, I carry this and I give it back to you now. And I choose to have your peace instead. So Father, right now, I I give you my heart. I give you my mind. I give you my decisions. I give you everything that I am. So set me free of the anxiety. Set me free of the worry. Take my heart, take my life, and guide me where you want to go. I am yours, Lord. Every part of me is yours. I see you. I love you. You have control. You have fortune. You are mine, and I am yours. And I'll walk in your freedom today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, you change everything.